and welcome to Open Stance, the podcast. This is your host, Tracy Height-Smith. This four-part series is a confronting journey into the heart of domestic violence, where our guests share personal stories discussing the emotional and physical abuse towards a partner, former partner, or family member. We have the privilege to listen to brave and intensely personal conversations of victim survivors and frontline domestic violence advocates who share confronting insight, educating our audience on what domestic and family violence is, who is at risk, what domestic violence involves, and what forms it can take. And through these tough conversations, we learn about the harrowing aftermath of domestic violence and the lifelong impact it has on individuals and communities around the world. In this episode, I speak with Kylie O'Connor, the Barefoot Warrior Coach. This remarkable woman dedicates her life to helping victim survivors recover their self-worth after domestic violence. Kylie fearlessly opens up and shares with us her personal experience with domestic violence and the trauma of abusive relationships, especially in relation to the LGBTQI community. You will hear from Kylie about the cycle of violence, forms of abuse, shame, safety plans, escaping violence, homelessness, gaslighting, domestic violence in lesbian relationships, healing from trauma, and breaking the cycle of abuse. This is a forceful conversation which delivers critical education, important support, and necessary understanding around the complexity of domestic violence, information we all need to hear in order to stop these crimes of violence. Welcome, Kylie O'Connor, to Open Stance. Good morning, Kylie. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Kylie, please um, take a minute, and we'd love to hear a little bit about you and where you're from, and, and that'll kick us off. Um, right. Um, well, I am the fourth child of five, and I grew up in a very staunchly uh, Catholic environment um, and did all the right things, supposed right things, um, got married at 20. Um, you know, I had a an amazing childhood, so I thought, <laughs> you know, climbing trees and riding bikes and all that mud fights and water fights and, you know, and they're, they're beautiful memories that I still treasure today. Um and got married and had four children very, very quickly. Uh, I was depressed for a lot of my life. Um, and I came out as a lesbian at 41 after 21 years of marriage. And that was really traumatic for me because, you know, you marry for life. And I'd spent 21 years building up um, and throwing myself completely into my children. And uh, I, I, my first girlfriend came and went and I went, oh, I didn't think that relationships were like that. Like it was so emotive and, you know, and there was a lot of projection. And I sort of went, oh, okay. And then I had a very short relationship. And that person actually, I don't use any kind of wording around this person. I, uh, you know, got phys very physically violent very quick. Um, and I had to really think quick around that person. Um, so then I went on to have a relationship with someone that was very emotionally abusive. And I didn't work that out until I was crafting um, with someone. And we were talking, she was talking about her ex-husband. I was talking about my, that then girlfriend. And I started Googling emotional abuse and went, holy shit, that's, I think it was 24 out of 28 things that I ticked off and I went, wow. Still didn't think anything about it. Um, then I got with a woman who was very gentle in her nature, but disregarded. And I went through the same thing again, except her son um, was the narcissist. <laughs> So you can see the stories slowly getting more, you know, and I would often think about my own parents' relationship, um, which was 
volatile to be gentle, but really was the poster child of domestic violence. Um, Ellie, can I just interrupt there? That was really powerful what you said. You were the poster child for domestic violence. Yeah. Can you just share a little bit more about what you mean by that? Uh, my parents had a very verbally abusive relationship. Um, when I did my healing of the effects of domestic violence in children, I realised that my siblings and I had all the hallmarks, bedwetting, lack of confidence, um, mental illness, eating disorders, uh, all five of us would display one or a couple of those. And I went, ah. Oh. And then I looked at my own child, children and went, fuck. And they displayed those two. I had a bedwetter. I had a child with an eating disorder. And no, it, they can be separate, but my eldest child divulged to me um, that my ex-husband had actually hit her when I wasn't around. And um, that was, and I still deal with the emotions around that because I burnt myself out for those children in the best way that I could in my trauma from my childhood and to find out that that person that I had trusted actually physically abused one of my children, uh, I can't explain the rage inside me and the betrayal around that. So the poster child <laughs> and, you know, as much as I didn't want to pass on my trauma, I, I inadvertently did because I hadn't done any internal work. Um, which, you know, I can only say that I threw myself in to my children and did the best I could with what I had at the time. Um, you know, and, you know, I listened to Gabor Maté and what he talks about trauma and addiction and, and the gentle way he talks about that. And I just think, thank God someone's talking about it. You know, the childhood trauma that follows us into adulthood is just um, horrific. It can be horrific and have devastating, you know, side effects. I was a smoker. I had an, um, an eating disorder, a binge eating when I couldn't handle my emotions. You know, the food would go in. And while anorexics don't eat, binge eaters do eat, but it's the same trying to do the same thing, trying, trying to control our environment when we don't feel we've got control. Okay. Um, and then you struggle with the, the childhood traumas, which you say lead yeah. to your later life. And yeah. after your- My, my, my father would often, um, my mother would challenge him. She was not a uh, doormat as people perceive, uh, victims of domestic violence um, as doormats. My mother was not a doormat. She would just you know, say, oh, no, and just challenge him. And he couldn't, he didn't know what to do with that because he was from an era where the wife does what he says, the husband says. And uh, he would often grab the breakfast table with the tablecloth, gather it all up and throw it down the stairs. And while he may not have hit her physically, that in a form is domestic violence and physical abuse. Uh, and then she went on to become like that too in her menopause years. Um, so that's, that, that's it. actually a very important piece that you just mentioned for our audience in recognizing one of the things we'll talk about is how you know you're in a domestic violence relationship? Do you even know you're in it? Um, when do you find out or come to a moment of truth that that's happening? But what you're witnessing as a child, Kylie, and experiencing and living is uh, we're looking at, uh, say, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, and maybe not physical abuse, so to speak, but are those 
Physi see, physical abuse doesn't necessarily have to be uh, them physically touching you. It can be you're asleep at night and they come in and turn the light on and wake you up. That is a form of physical abuse. Um, and waking you up is just, and I didn't realise that until I was in a safe room and they had a list of all the forms of abuse in domestic violence. And I really need to get my hands on that poster because it's a real eye opener. And in physical abuse it had waking you up in the middle of the night when you're in a deep sleep or turning the lights on. That was a form of physical abuse. Uh, do, which, do you remember any other ones that are forms of physical abuse that might not seem like most people might assume it's just you're getting beaten or punched or thrown down yeah. the hey i haven't got a black eye you know um he he didn't physically hit me in my particular case um i had stated and this was two days two days before i actually escaped i went you know what give me the keys to my car i'm done um at this point my perpetrator had the keys to my car that I had paid off. I was very proud of that car because prior to that, I was a stay-at-home mum and I relied on my husband's wage to keep the house running. Um, and I had come out, I got a house to rent. Um, I paid all the bills by myself and it was very, uh, there was a form of freedom in that. And I paid off this car and I was really proud of that. Um, and my perpetrator, I think they intuitively, they're, they're very, very clever and manipulative. And they've had to learn that from what I can gather a lot of the time, but not always, it's from their own trauma for, as a child. So they've learned to uh, be like that out of survival. Um, and he had the keys to my car and he kept them in his pocket. So to me, that's a form of, physical abuse too because they're actually um impeding and trying to control what you're doing so they're keeping you and it, i suppose that comes under coercive control um and then you just touched on financial control you were dependent on his wage did you experience any kind of financial coercion or control that I, we, with that particularly the last abusive relationship um yeah, there were a couple and it can be really, really sneaky. So the agreement was we put a certain amount together per fortnight towards the groceries and then we would go in and he would get more and then I would get the blame for that. So that's a, a probably a mixture of financial. Um, uh, it was only afterwards he had kept all of the money that was actually his mother's. Um, that I had given him for the rent. And this is this is the other thing. They lie about what is actually going on. So he made me um, believe, he told me that his mother was a chronic gambler and that he was keeping the money for the rent safe. And it wasn't actually true. Um, it was just a way of controlling his mother and me at the same time. And then after I escaped, he actually accused me to all uh, the people that would listen that I had stolen that money when it was actually him. Um, he didn't want me to get a job. I was on Newstart at the time. Um, he didn't want me to get a job. And so I didn't. So that's, that's financial control and abuse. Um, the fact that they don't allow you that freedom to, um, to actually get a job because you're gonna when you get it have have your own money there's a there's a confidence that comes with that and he would say oh you're just going to cheat on me <laughs> so how does that how does that translate then when you said earlier that after you escaped so that's a powerful word to use you escaped a relationship you escaped a marriage but where does that leave you when you were dependent on his wage and um, okay, so with my ex-husband, um, it was very amicable to start off with. Um, I found a lesbian couple that would 
you know, I would pay for their, you know, rent a room from them while I was getting qualified for something and going to school. Um, and that was very amicable. And I only found out 10 years later that he hit one of my children. I'll say my children, because I think the moment he decided to hit that child, it no longer became, was uh, my, my eldest child was his. That's how I view it. There's an emotional cutoff there because I think healthy people don't do that shit to their parent, to their children. Uh, they go, hang on, I really felt the need to be physically violent there. I need help. And I think we're in a stage of society where we're informed enough that you, you can go and get help. Um, and at numerous times in that marriage, he chose not to. So I, that's how I choose to word that. <laughs> I'm sure that's not how he chooses to word it. Um, I no longer speak with him. I, I don't have any connections with him. I did call him out on that behaviour and and then blocked him on all social media. Um, and then he, and this is what abusers do, he then rang that child that he had abused and said, what have you said to your mother? So then, then put all the blame and onus on that child and re-traumatised that child. And I just, Tracy, I'd heard so many stories of children that had gone to their parents and said, this has happened to me. And that child not being believed by the parent that didn't know. And then that child went on to have a life of addiction. And I didn't want that for my child. So I called my ex-husband out on his bullshit. And I look back and I saw all the signs of that, um, of that um, picking on and singling out that child. And I called him out on it numerous times. And it was just, no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And I, and I believed that gaslighting because, well, I had no job. I had nowhere to go. I was a stay-at-home mum with four kids. So um, how, how does that abuse in in that marriage how does that set you up for your next relationships and we're always talking about um well i'm coming across it a lot in my research and reading is that when you are in abusive relationships you've mentioned a childhood where you were already victimized you're in a marriage um, dealing with this again and then you go on to several relationships that progressively got worse. So you're not getting set up very well for the next. No, no. And I, I, I've, I've been blessed enough um, to have a sister that looked at my parents and went, that's not the way to have a, have a relationship. Um, and I've always think, I think I've always used that as a benchmark. Um, and even my now fiance, Julie was looking at, uh, that sister and her husband and it's just so endearing to hear um, Julie say oh look at that he still opens the door for her and they've been married for 38 years and I said yeah he adores the ground she walks on um, and I think I've always admired the peace and respect in their relationship and I've always looked at that so when I was going through these, I went, there has to be a better way. And in a same-sex relationship, there's got to be a way that I can achieve that too. There's got to be a way. And I, I think that be, was deep inside my mantra. There's got to be a way to have a healthy relationship. So when you, when you come to that clarity, this is so important, that moment of truth, that understanding there's a glimmer of hope and light, right? That you're talking about that it's got to be better than this. How did you find the strength? How did you how did you grab onto that and go somewhere with it and not just think it, feel it, and then get scared and let it go? How do you move? Uh, look, to be honest, I kept on walking straight through all the red flags that were presented to me uh, because of my lack of self-esteem and my own trauma. So it wasn't. Sorry, go on. Oh, I just lost you for a moment. What red flags oh. were you saying? Uh, oh, like all the red flags, they don't respect you in those early, you know, 
you've got to work out what you want in a relationship and what you figure it's a very personal thing. So respect was always a big thing for me. But you've also got to look for the signs of, I reckon one of the first things a, a perpetrator does is they will start working on separating you from either your children or your family and your friends. It's the first thing they do. Because with those family and friends, you've got emotional power that they can't control. So it's one of the first things they does start working on um, and they cut you off. That's, that's what they do, you know, uh, move in and, and they want you to move in with them really quickly. Um, and that's another, and there's also a mask. I call it the Jekyll and Hyde because that, it, that's exactly what it is. And I actually witnessed it coming out of the counsellors the other day. There was an old bloke, I was at the counter and this is classic. And I went, fucking hell, he got me again. And I just, it shakes, it, it, because they're nice. And we, as a society, we go, oh, you know, he's a really nice bloke. You know, you have a giggle at bed, something funny he said. And I went downstairs and there he is with his, and this was an older couple, I would say late seventies. And he's there ripping into her and he's real nasty. And I went, fucking hell, asshole bastard. No. And then he stormed off. He said, I'm not fucking driving you home. And they've just been to the counsellor. And I walked up to her and I said, are you okay? And she, she shrugged and she said, oh, you know what you're like, they're like. And I giggled, but I felt so heart, so heartbroken for her. Um, and I said, oh, that's why I'm a lesbian. <laughs> but it's not true. I was just being funny at the time. Um, but really, lesbians are chronic for emotional abuse. That's That's been my experience. Why? Why can't um, I? I, we, as we connect, we, we connect very, very quickly on an emotional level. Um, and I think if you don't establish healthy communication, um, that gets out of control. And like I, I said to you before, like my story is, I didn't deal with any of these relationships. I didn't, I didn't. I think my first girlfriend, I journaled for six months. I got all my anger and all that out. Uh, but I never actually sat down and thought, what is it that I want from a relationship? No one actually sat me down and said, what is a healthy relationship to you? What does that actually look like? And actually just um, dissect it. Because essentially that's what I had to do. Um, I wrote a list. And that's something that that sister I was talking about taught me when I was 18 to write a list but every list that I had written was not comprehensive enough into the type of relationship that I wanted um, I don't think uh, the rainbow community know how to effectively communicate and clearly communicate with respect and vulnerability through their issues and it was something that I listened to Brene Brown's talk on shame TED talk on shame and I stood in my parents kitchen and I cried uh, for the shame of not being straight uh, for going through everything that I'd been through um, and standing in my parents kitchen you know effectively homeless because I've had to move back home again um, and and just moving through she she talks about shame being a swamp that you move through you don't live in um, and that's effectively what I did. I let go of my shame. You know, I'm attracted to women and you know what, that's okay. It's, you know, it's who you are, you know, um, just be okay with that and know that your family love you regardless because essentially um, my mum had has advanced dementia. Um, mum was, didn't want to talk about Kylie left her husband for, you know, because she's gay. She, that was not something that she talked to anyone about. Um, but the rest of my family loved me regardless. And mum did, did too in her own way. She just couldn't reconcile that whole same-sex attraction thing. She didn't understand it. And, you know, with the umbrella of religion, it, it uh, casts a, a shadow, a, 
you know, a, a dark essence of being same-sex attracted, but I'm had to move through that whole umbrella of, of shame. That, that's another, that's a nice segue to a very powerful piece of this, which you have experienced in your life journey is you're in these abusive relationships and there's a moment of truth and understanding that uh, you take and you say it can be better than this. What do you do then? Because this is the information that, as you also mentioned, there's a world of support organizations, people, coaches, hospitals, everything that are equipped to handle this. Yet, if you don't even know that you're really a victim of domestic violence, or the day you wake up and you realize, not this isn't right, what do you do next? Can you share with us a pathway, a pathway you took? What, what did you need? What was available? What what wasn't available or um, for audience? Well, this is all part of why I do what I do because my aim is to have uh, rainbow refuges in every town in Australia with my program. So what uh, is the rainbow refuge? Uh, just for people that identify as LGBTQIA+. So when I, um, when I escaped, he took off in my car uh, and I was in Long Jetty uh, in Central Coast and I took off like a bat out of hell with the clothes on my back. Uh, it was the one opportunity. He had followed me to the toilet. He watched me change my tampon. He followed my every move. He would block the door. Um, Did he have access to your phone? I hear... <laughs> thank you for mentioning that um he he's so his mother just this is a bit of a backstory he he his mother had put an avo on him uh we were in a hotel and his cousin um or uncle had rung him on my phone so i can't get cold of him i handed him my phone knowing at that very moment i would never see that phone again um, and there's a really lovely um, guy in Queensland that has, through COVID, started DV Phones. It's a charity, Ash Wood. Ashton Wood. He's actually one of the guests on this podcast segment. Yeah, lovely bloke. I've, I've had him on my podcast too. Um, and, like, they're the kind of programs I could have easily, instead of going to Vodafone, you know, when I get up on, um, when I get you know, on my feet, the CEO of Vodafone's going to hear about how you're treating me. Um, you know, I'm in a domestic violence situation, I'm homeless, and you won't, you've got no, no um, scope to want to help me. And yet I've been a loyal customer of yours for 13 years. So had I known about someone like Ash, I could have gone, hey, can you send me a phone? You know, so I had to have a shitty ass phone. I ended up, um, I thought, I'm not scared to take on a telco. I just, you know, I'll ring the ombudsman because you're just being an asshole. Um, and I ended up getting a new phone. So I, I sorted that shit out. I get real stubborn. Um, and I go, I call it the mad Irish woman deep inside me, you know, and I just go, I'm not going to tolerate this shit anymore. And I think, when I escaped, even though I was traumatised, um, I went did go to Centrelink um, for a, even a crisis payment, which I wasn't eligible for. And I went, what? <laughs> like, I've got nothing and I wasn't eligible for anything. Um, I went to the police and the police were just, I know they get a bad rap, but the police I did deal with were just amazing. Um, they obviously saw the signs. Um, they rang him saying, Kylie doesn't want to be with you anymore. Can you give the car back? So once they know what you want, they use, they weaponize that against you. That's what they do. And they get away with it very, very effectively. What could have helped you more in your situation when you're escaping 
And I, <laughs> well, I ended up in, I ended up telling the Department of Housing to go fuck itself. Um, so I was in crisis housing for about two weeks. I had to get all, we, we ended up going back to the hotel room. The police took me. I got all my belongings, which were in baskets and whatnot. Um, and I had to trudge those up a really steep hill every three days to prove that I was still homeless. Like it was an ordeal. Because it was Christmas, there was, and I had no children, um, there was no room in a refuge. Do you feel you were discriminated against or just put lower on the totem pole or is it the same? It was just it lower on the totem pole. And it was at that moment, I thought, when I get the funding or the money, I'm going to change this because when a trans woman comes out of the closet to her, say she's married, um, very, very, like the statistics are outrageous. Um, and most trans women will get abused by their wife. Um, and effectively, they just want to, you know, do what they have to do to live. And a lot of them end up suicidal or homeless. Um, in my case, I was homeless too. Um, there's been, I haven't met many gay guys, but I know that there's been in, in Queensland that has been through it himself. He's a police officer. Uh, he has an awareness, um, rainbow awareness uh, group. Uh, I, I want a refuge so that if there's a rainbow community identified person out there that is going through that, they can go to a police station and they can ring and like you are um, setting up a network, hey, you know, there's a barefoot house here, I'll ring them and they can get into a refuge. And we there's now um, here in Wollongong, the tra trauma centre, would love that to be on a rainbow um, in a rainbow setting. And the reason why there's, that's needed is because straight women, women are traumatised by seeing men. And when a trans woman is transitioning, she still has those male features that she hates, but it's a fact of transition. Um, and I don't mean prejudice or hate in saying that. It's just that as a straight woman, that's what they get traumatised. They get triggered by seeing that and they need that safe space to heal. And so does a trans woman. Um, and, and that's, I, I just, it's so needed. And yet the, it, the own, my own community don't really want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about the rates of domestic violence in the community. It's, uh -huh. it's, uh, look, I, I, I'm not sure what the deal is. Um, I've, I think I was born talking, so that's not an issue for me. I just created a Facebook group where uh, I, I talk about it. Here's what you went through. The smear campaign is something that I talked about on Monday where you leave and they start smearing uh, like you're in a, in a a political election and they just smear your name to whoever will listen. They will ring your ex-girlfriends. They will <laughs> they'll do whatever. And we get very, um, but, oh, that's not the truth. And as I was trying to tell the group that stand strong in what you went through and know that that's the truth and go no contact because that's the only, only way to emotionally survive that they, they're going to say whatever they're going to say and you just need to move forward in, in your own healing. And that's actually cutting yourself off from that. I think they, they call it a trauma bond where you constantly think about the ex and it's, it's, it's the after effects of coercive control as well. Um, and I, I just, after I left, I went, I went through all of that shit for a reason so that when people come to me in the future, I, I knew it. I was sitting in the backpackers and I, ha I had, I had um, quite a spiritual experience and like I had nothing and nobody knew who I was. Um, and I had a vision of faceless, genderless people walking towards me, um, needing my help. And it was like, a, this, this is what you're meant to do.
um, and I sat down and drew a vision of uh, of refuge and you know all of that kind of thing. So I I I just talk about it. Um, I don't talk about what I went through per se, uh, because to me the healing, it like the one thing I noticed through the women's uh, centre that I went to down here in Wollongong was they talk about what you've been through uh, and how to deal with breaches of AVOs and where to get legal advice, which is like the, the basis of starting over, but there's no program in those women's centres to break the cycle. And if you don't want to go through domestic violence ever again, you've got to go through why you do what you do, why you make the decisions you you do. Like respect is a core value of mine. Why was I attracting people that disrespected me? Like why, why was that a thing? When you hold respect dearly to you, as this 15, 16-year-old, I would hold the door open for old women and watch my own age group walk straight past them. And I never understood that. Like, you know, it's an old woman, you know, it's going to take you three to five seconds out of your day to actually give her a bit of respect. Like, what's the big deal here? Um, so why was I attracting people that, um, you know, and I had to go into a very dark hole and work out why I had those traumatised things and and those to what, what I call toxic traits. Um, I just had to go there. Did it make, once you got to that point and you went through into the dark hole and you grabbed onto those reasons why you were following or falling into the same kind of abusive relationships, um, did it make sense to you? Were you able to put it together and start to piece together your childhood, uh, your first marriage, what happened to you know, the abuse to your child? Were you able did that start to make sense in a way that really gave you a pathway to progress and, and the recovery uh, pathway that we're talking about? Um, it, a lot of it did make sense, even how um, my mum, I perceived my mum to treat me. <laughs> um, and it did. I, I sat there and I went through my relationships with the counsellor and my mother's what had happened in my mother's family, um, not necessarily dad's side because I had a bit of resentment built up towards mum. So I knew that there had to be work there because I know that mum did a very good job uh, and she did the best she could with what she had. And when I went into the trauma of what happened in her family, I went, shit, mum did a really good job, you know. Um, as a, it was, as was a, a coach now, as a coach, when you're working with victim survivors, uh, this piece of the complexity of afterlife, <laughs> the, the yeah. life after trauma of an abusive domestic violence situation, what are we looking at? Let's just share a little bit about um, those most critical steps and just to start moving in a positive direction or yes. just to survive on a day-to-day -day basis. If you're homeless, if you don't have a job, if you have no skills, if uh, you know, you're just literally starting over, as you've mentioned, what are yes. the critical steps that we should be identifying right now for someone at that place? Uh, safety, physical safety is an absolute must. Uh, you can't work on, I don't, my perception in, in my own journey so and I'll only use that as a reflective benchmark. Um, if you're not physically safe, um, you will find it very, very hard to work on your emotional well-being. It's not impossible, but um, so finding a, which is like really hard. I was went through what I went through pre-COVID and it was very, very hard to find accommodation then. So finding accommodation now as a homeless person would be like gobsmackingly, frustratingly impossible. Which is, a reason, is, is it a reason a lot of people don't leave? They just don't have a place to go? Well, yeah, that, that could very well be, you know, um, very much 
you know, you don't have a job, so you stay. Like at least I've got food in my belly. I can I can be the sponge for you know what they are doing to me. Um, and and financial stress is a very good reason to stay. You know, and if someone is going through that, you know, you're doing it for survival. You know, and a lot of people after they leave feel guilty for not leaving earlier. Um, but it's like you're in survival. Be gentle with yourself, you know. Um, and and there are organisations out there, you know, the victim services, psychologist vans, which is like I went to vans and relationships Australia. Uh, like you don't even need money to go to those three organisations. You don't. You, it, your relationships Australia in the beginning charged me five dollars a session. Um, and Vans was free, which is violence, abuse, neglect service, I think. And how, and how important is that? It, it has to be free. If it's yeah, a free yeah. service, most yeah. people are not paying for those services in good situations, never mind yeah. in crisis mode. Is that right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because you, I, I escaped with the clothes on my back I uh when I handed him my phone it had my license uh and it's funny because my intuition said to me um before he came around the corner get your license and your ATM card and I didn't listen to it and the moment I handed him my phone I knew I would never see any of them again so I then had to <laughs> go through all of the steps to um, get my identification back. So, you know, there's it, it's one horrific step after the other and you have to jump through these hoops um, in order to get yourself back on track. And you've got these government organisations just seemingly what it felt like was whipping you for... A situation that you have had no control over and you were escaping fear and survival um, and they was like yeah we don't care you've got $300 in your account you can pay for accommodation um, and it was just like when I get out of this I'm going to open a refuge so that people can heal uh, it's like having those core care and cluster trauma centers are so vital because it gives someone that safety that I'm talking about. And once you're physically safe and you've got a roof over your head, you can then set about healing. If you're not safe, everything else is, is trivial compared to it. You know, and, and before you started recording, I you know, was saying like the first six to nine months after you escape domestic violence are the most dangerous. So if you're homeless and you've got that statistic and they know where you are and they're stalking you. Kylie, that's so important. I'm just the first six to nine months after you escape is the most dangerous. Why is it the most dangerous? So you've escaped uh, and you are saying no more to this cycle of violence and the cycle of violence has it's a life of its own. It's like its own ecosystem um, where they will pull you in with the, I'm sorry, I love you. And I watched my father do that. I'm sorry, I won't do it again, only to do it again. Um, and then the gaslighting and, you know, all of the, the whatever they feel like abusing you with in whatever form. Um, and then it just starts, it just keeps in that cycle. So when you escape, you're saying no more, I'm breaking that cycle. Um, and they get desperate and they will do anything and say anything to make you suffer. Um, and, you know, I've read many social media posts about how perpetrators use the court system. That's one of the ways they continue to do it uh, because that's, they're allowed to, they'll, they'll do whatever they can get away with. And, most that there's tragic stories you hear of uh, women that have been killed are uh, in those six to nine months. So this is 
it's giving me chills. So this is the education piece that people outside of a domestic violence situation, outside of the victim themselves, they need and we need to know this, we need to hear it and we need to understand it so that uh, if somebody discloses that they are a domestic violent, violence victim, if they have just escaped, our society doesn't think, great, they're out of it, all good, we go on with life. The six to nine months following that removal in your situation is so mm -hmm. dangerous and can be so yeah. threatening that that's where we need our resources, our support, uh, yep. people to come in like an army, correct? And Yeah, well, in, in my situation, I escaped on in just before Christmas. Um, the first court appearance was the third, 10th of January or something, and then the 31st. Um, he would not divulge the location of my car. Um, and this, the cops just went, go to that location if it's not there. We will, and, and the cops use the system for my benefit, and I, I am eternally grateful for that. They just reported it as stolen so I could claim the insurance, uh, which I now drive the car I bought with that insurance money. The insurance company was amazing, um, just amazing. Um, so there are organisations out there that do know and they will support you. Um, it's, yeah, uh, there's nothing, there was nothing. Um, and I struggled to find my feet, but I was fucking determined to find my feet. Um, I had my 83-year-old father, dad was 83 at the time, um, looking after mum full time. And he's going, I don't care, just come home. Uh, and he's looking after mum for 14 hours a day. Um, but I also, being that's that stubborn Irish woman coming out in me, was determined to make my perpetrator accountable for their behaviour in a way that I could which was getting that ADVO um, and an assault charge because I said I'd had enough and he launched himself at me, pinning me to the lounge, knocking my head on the wall and choking me with my T-shirt. Um, and I just went, holy fuck, I've got to get out of here. He's going to kill me if I don't leave. Um, and that's one thing. I was trivialising my own experience on uh, a lifeline call. Um, this is about two weeks later. And the, the guy on the other end of the call said, Kylie, let me tell you something about that whole choking thing. While he might not have left bruises and he got away with the, eventually he got away with the assault charge because there were no bruises. And that's how clever they can be. Like you could be working with someone who's going through this um, and they will give you um, I had I had my trauma counsellor say to me, she said, I do not believe survivors or victims of domestic violence are, um, you know, placid in their experience. She said, there are subtle lines of resistance. So she said, you know, when you stood up to him and said, don't underestimate me, which I did. I said, you know, you might think that I'm, you know, placid. I said, you're severely underestimating me. Uh, do not underestimate me because you won't know what hit you. Um, you know, I'm not that placid woman. I'm a really feisty Irish woman deep inside. And I, I don't, I won't tolerate this if I'm pushed to a certain point, which I didn't. Um, but I did on another level, which there was a deep shame about, you know, I had, even now I get really yucky, but I'm going to say it because I think it really needs to be said. Um, so we're in a hotel room and this is about two hours before I escaped. Um, and he said, oh, we're going here today, threw a shirt at me and said, go and iron my shirt. And I tried to find an ironing board and I couldn't find it. So he threw a towel at me and said, well, get on your knees and do some women's work. And I, even now I go, I can't believe that actually happened to me. <laughs> um, I was on my knees 
ironing his shirt and I was looking up and he was scrolling through Facebook. Um, and I went, I'm out of here. That, that way, there was a real moment of clarity. I went, I'm done. I'm out. Forget it. And this is like two days after the choking incident. So, um, and getting back to that phone call, the, the, the guy said to me, let me tell you about that. He said, had you stayed, you'd be dead now because the next step is murder. He said, that's what they do. So there's no, there's no bruising. And when we, we had a court date uh, in February uh, where the assault happened, so I had to borrow money. I had to rent a car. I had to rent a hotel room to go up. They were a no-show. Um, so the assault charge got put in and a warrant went out for their arrest and uh, the ADVO got put in place. Now, because the perpetrator has rights, he contested that whole thing and we had to go back to court after that as well. Because um, people said to me, I said, look, I'm just not going to bother. And they said, no, you've got to go up there and make sure this gets put in place because if you don't, everything will just, it won't get set in place. If you're a no-show, they'll go, oh, well, it's not a big deal and it won't, it won't get put in place. So I, was, I showed up and I was terrified. Um, there was no safe room. It was a small seaside town. Um, and people argued with me that there was a safe room, but it was locked. <laughs> so if he showed up, I had no safe space to, to feel safe at all. And it was really traumatizing. Um, and so, yeah, it was those, those days are really, really hard to go to court and get re-traumatized all over again. The post-traumatic stress starts, and that's like a really nasty way to time travel. So this is the incredible levels of trauma you experience as a victim who has already escaped yep. an enormously dangerous, traumatic, lived experience of domestic violence. Yep. Now you move into another highly traumatic yep. place in life that's six to nine months and longer potentially depending yep. on whether or not you have any support in place, any lifelines available to you, it can look many ways. And Kylie, this is a wonderful uh, way to move into what you're doing now. You've taken this incredible journey of pain and suffering as a victim yourself, and you're now a coach for domestic violence survivors. Uh, yeah. Because obviously, there's such a critical component to be dealt with once you leave these relationships and in a violent situation. Um, and you are one of the resources that is available uh, from lived experience um, and education to help guide and navigate, navigate support. And, and literally as you're called barefoot warrior coach to help deliver strategy for victims in this next part of their life, which is yeah. complex. Making sure it never fucking happens again. <laughs> Believe and love yourself so much that you only attract into your life people that are supportive of your journey. Well, and to, to, to bring this all together, please just share a couple minutes about who you are as a barefoot warrior coach and uh, why this is important for people to recognize when they're feeling that place that there's support for the next part of this journey yeah. and life yeah. after abuse and how critical that is to have somebody in your corner supporting you. It's going to be a tough time regardless and, yeah. and people like yourselves are available and, and readily available. Yeah. I mean, I, I have straight women in my group as well. I, I started a Facebook group called the warrior's way um and um can anybody find that group how, how can yeah it's a pri it is a private group but anybody can find it if you look it up um the warrior's way we'll make sure to post it on your site yep. um it's it's um i post uh morning and night about different things and i do a live every 
uh, Monday. Um, I wrote my own a program uh, that takes you through basically what I discovered through my own healing. Um, so I didn't think I was worthy. I didn't think I was enough and I didn't think I was lovable um, at all in, in any way, shape or form. And especially because I, you know, I was gay and I'm not sure why we in the rainbow community think that um, my experience of coming out, I haven't had much homophobia, but I know my partner, my, my fiance, Julie has, as she's been out her whole life and her job, she there, there was a time um, where she had to hide who she was for fear of, you know, so there is an essence there in the last 10 or 15 years, there's, not been many experiences where I have especially in my job um, in my paid employment I don't experience homophobia at all um, which is wonderful but I know people do so there is that stigma um, so moving through the, the shame of how you feel around certain things is really important too um, I as a because of my experiences as a child became a chronic people pleaser chronic so I had to learn what my needs were as a human and as a woman what do I need to be emotionally healthy what do I need um, and and that takes time and that takes effort and it takes commitment um, and then recognizing it sounds simplistic but it's not because when you are a chronic people pleaser, how you feel doesn't matter. Um, and this is so important for our audience listening is most of the time you're never going to know the things that you're talking about. You certainly didn't at the time and you've had to no. spend many, many years uncovering that and coming to terms and, and developing an understanding and acceptance and, and, and then dealing with it. So as a, as a domestic violence life coach, with this personal experience, you are such an amazing uh, person to be able to help bring to awareness, um, in many cases, the things that a person may be suffering or enduring without even knowing. And, and that's so powerful because once you have that type of recognition or understanding, that is a stepping stone to the next the next yeah. part of the process, but until you even get your hands or your head around what the core issues are, it's very hard to make any type of progress. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And, and being, like I said before, being physically safe is the cornerstone of, uh, is the first step. Um, and and then even, even if you are homeless, like I was at the entrance in a backpackers and I would make myself a coffee and go down and watch the pelicans and all of that. So that I started that self-care very, very like it in the very beginning. It's such a beautiful part of the world. Um, and it was in summer and it was just glorious. Um, and I also, when I came home, I started, I had someone say, you need to get into the water. And I just loved that. I've, I've you cannot underestimate the power of self-care. And again, this is part of the holistic approach to dealing with the actual abusive relationship, escaping, uh, dealing with those dangerous six to nine months, typically, but then the ongoing self-care and recovery, because recovery is such an ongoing, non-linear situation. <laughs> so self-care yeah. has to be it's, it's, it's the cornerstone of, well, being safe, physically safe is one part. You, you start your therapy like that. That is just, I, I can't emphasize enough going to therapy um, and your self-care. You're going to need that self-care and that self-nurturing uh, while you're doing that hard stuff of therapy. It's, it's, it's like being on a seesaw or a balancing the scales. And it's, um, presenting, it's presenting all the options that are available because there are so many incredible options that are successful for people 
and we're all different. Every trauma is, whether it looks the same or not, we're all unique and we'll handle every single trauma in our own way. So just being in a position to know what is available, uh, personal okay. experience, whatever worked for yourself uh, may not work for someone else, but being able to deliver a, a whole consortium of options where one thing may just hit somebody initially that they can grab onto and that's your lifeboat. Yeah. And then that leads to something else or yeah. just understanding what different types of resources in terms of self-care are available. So, well, yeah. And, yeah. and you, like I, I actually had a, I went to a psychic medium and she said to me, you need to be in the water. And that became a very spiritual experience for me. And that was my sacred time of, I'd go before it hit, you know, we both know what the Australian summers are like and I've had a melanoma. So I would go down there at seven, eight o'clock in the morning before the sun was too hot. Um, and I would do my self care, um, you know, and it would just became the cornerstone of, and I did that all the way through COVID too, because it was just, you know, that was one thing I could do. And it's, um, it sounds like you've created a habit, which is going to, um, it, it's so important for all of us to recognize some of these things. They're just really good habits. They're not the bad yeah. habits and the detrimental yeah. uh, mechanisms that we use to deal with difficult situations or trauma in this situation, but creating good habits, knowing what those are, what's available, and then just yeah. step by step, day by day, and making them I, I, sorry go on no no that's sorry all right. I, I just sometimes it seems so overwhelming when we're in certain situations that how do we it's too big for us but when you really scale yeah. it back and you go into the water one day and then you go in the second day take it day by day small yeah. steps small steps is what I'm a big believer in and that yeah. can create and does create these ongoing sustainable good habits that are so important for healing and recovery yeah definitely definitely um i remember um reading a book called the compound effect which is a bit like atomic habits but it's a little bit different as well and he talks about doing that those little things every day yeah. and and self-care because i'd spent 50 years of my life completely neglecting myself I had to be very severe in how I did my self-care. I've talked with, with clients that have colouring in books, adult colouring in books is just like the bomb. That's what they love to do. So that's what they do. You've got to find what you love. And when that medium actually said to me, you need to be in the water, I instantly went back to my childhood and remembered how I felt in water and I just felt like, you know, a platypus being playful in the water. That's how I feel when I'm in the water. And I went swimming for the first time since winter. I haven't quite got through to the iceberg stage of swimming in winter yet, but, um, and I was the same, like I'm 53 and I was playfully playing in the, in the waves. It's like, it was the best thing, you know. Um, Kylie, uh, I'm just going to, say that that is the most positive thing and again as an education and support platform here hearing you speak knowing what you've been through what you've endured what you've come through where you are today and to listen to you just speak right then fills me and i'm sure a lot of people listening with incredible hope and if not it's a it's it's you speaking there's a real human here that's been through such tough times um, and we have come through and, and it just shines light on the fact that this is possible and it's going to take a lot of work and it's hard yeah. and it's dangerous. Um, but we have the support systems that are out there and we're going to continue to make yeah. them more available. Um, but look at where you are right now. It's absolutely. And, and, and I remember um, seeing that, oh, it's a meme you know, like there's light at the end of the tunnel and no, it's not a train. And I remember laughing at that, but I remember being in that tunnel going, fuck, I hope it's not a train. <laughs> Where's the light at the end of the tunnel? And that's why I have my Facebook group to help people know that there's not, 
there's light at the end of the tunnel and you're not alone. On that note, Kylie, in the, in the link section, I will make sure that we all have access to that Facebook so that people can reach you. Um, I will make sure that all of your information and contact details that you're able to share uh, for those listening that would like to reach out to you um, are made available. You are a true gift to so many that are walking this pathway right now that are in it and that are going to come through it. Um, and I'm, I'm so excited that we have you as a resource and a human being that can um, literally be a lifesaver for someone out there. Just personally, thank you for your time and your courage for being here. I'm truly sorry for what you've had to go through in your life. Um, but it's a real honor to share this time with you because I know that it helps so many people and it will um, be such a gift in, in so many people's lives. And I, I really yeah. appreciate the time that you have spent here sharing such personal, intimate um, stories about your life. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Tracy. And thank you for having me. You know, that's if my story can, you know, empower someone to do the work that needs to be done so they don't go through it ever again, then, you know, I, I will be happy about that. You know, um, I want to reach millions of people. That's my goal. I'm, I don't think small, I think big, um, you know, and I think what the work you're doing with Pip is just like, it's so good because um, getting your name out there is actually hard work, you know. So thank you for having me. Well, and you're, if, you're, um, you're reaching a lot of people and we have the, the beauty of today's world is we can reach millions of people. So why wouldn't we? And that's, that's awesome. right. Why wouldn't we? Of course, we're going to do that. We need to reach everybody yeah. we possibly can. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And I look forward to putting this uh, domestic violence segment up. It's a very powerful piece and so much to be learned and, and gained from your segment. So uh, we'll stay close in touch. And I'm sure we have a lot of work to do together down the track here. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you.